From iCare Partners, this is the Doc to Doc podcast. Clinical discussions with our team of world-class eye care professionals across the country. Through connectedness and continuing education, we help patients see their absolute best for life. Your host is Dr. Lori Preventure, a glaucoma specialist and cataract surgeon at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. I am very, very much looking forward to this Doc to Doc episode for multiple reasons. One, I think you're going to learn a lot on a really cool topic. Number two, this is our first episode that has three guests. And number three, it's our first episode that has multiple subspecialties involved. So here we go. I have Dr. John Pargament. He is an oculoplastic surgeon at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. I have Dr. Kavitha Sivaraman. She is a cornea specialist at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. And I have Dr. Megan Tui. She is also a cornea specialist at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. Now, you're probably wondering what we're going to talk about. There are lots of areas where plastics and cornea intersect. But tonight, we're actually going to talk about neurotrophic keratopathy. We've actually done an episode on neurotrophic keratopathy and a treatment called Oxervate. So if you haven't watched that episode, make sure you go back and check that out. Tonight, though, we're going to talk about corneal neurotization, which is really fun to say. We're going to say it a whole bunch tonight so you can get used to different ways of pronouncing it. But I'm going to direct this towards the cornea side of the team here. Drs. Tui or Sivaraman broadly introduce us to this concept. What is corneal neurotization and what is it needed for? What kind of patients are candidates for this? Sure. So um, thanks for having us, Lori, of course. So, you know, neurotrophic uh, keratopathy is a giant problem that ophthalmologists face as both cornea specialists and uh, comprehensive ophthalmologists as well as across the board. We see many patients who come in with difficult to heal epithelial defects or poor ocular surfaces that have an underlying cause of um, neuro neurotrophic cornea. Basically, there are many, many things that can cause this. Patients can have histories of trauma, surgery. Um, a very common cause we see is herpetic keratitis resulting in poor corneal sensation, also long-term um, drop use, including topical NSAIDs and glaucoma medications, or a history of multiple surgeries can leave patients with um, poor sensation and poor um, ocular surfaces. We found that there's literature and research to suggest that in addition to um, just having poor blink and poor sort of protective mechanisms, these patients also have poor epithelium as the nerves provide the corneal epithelium with nutrients that are needed. So this concept um, has been around for a long time is my understanding, and it's sort of relatively new to the corneal and ophthalmic world, but basically the idea is to try to use um, other sensory nerves that are redundant in these patients to uh, supply new peripheral corneal nerves to these patients and hopefully improve their epithelium and their ability to protect and heal their own corneal surface. Great. So that sounds wonderful in concept, but potentially very difficult to do. So Dr. Pargament, can you walk us through a little bit how this works, how cornea and plastics team up to get this done? The technique itself has really only been used uh, more commonly in the last two to three years. But um, initially, uh, this was the, uh, the technique developed by a plastic surgeon who had a lot of experience with peripheral nerve grafting and, and neurotization. And she combined with the cornea department at her university at Eastern uh, Virginia 
and then did about 16 cases uh, and found really good results. But that that uh, that research really didn't get widely um, accepted or published until um, a few years later when um, a, a fellow or sorry, a, uh, a plastics doc, an oculoplastics physician who uh, completed the same fellowship that I did in Salt Lake City um, had seen a patient with terrible neurotrophic keratopathy and was seeing him for a tarsorophy consult. And she was very upset about the prospect of having to have a tarsorophy. And he said he would go home that night and research what might be available out there. And, and he, he stumbled upon this, this paper from, from Eastern Virginia. And so essentially the, the technique involves... Uh, initially, as described, involves harvesting a sensory um, nerve, typically the first division of the trigeminal nerve as it comes out of the supraorbital notch, and then using that as a direct nerve transfer that's then transposed down through the fornix around the limbus. And then it, 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 that's where our cornea colleagues come in to help us to tunnel the, uh, the graft uh, around the limbus and secure it into place. That uh, that nerve then um, stays there and thins over time, and new axons uh, travel to the uh, to the limbus and and innervate that nerve. Sorry, innervate that cornea over approximately three to six months. That's really interesting. I'm going to ask a follow up question because I'm so curious on how this works. So, from either of the cornea docs, how do you actually get this tunneled into the cornea? What do you do? Sure. So our plastics colleagues do most of the heavy lifting. Uh, once they have the nerve, whether, whether it be a donor uh, graft or an autograft from the patient, um, there's an incision made in the bulbar conjunctiva um, near the fornix, and then that nerve, then you tunnel under in, in that conjunctiva. You open a small area near the limbus as well. Um, the graft is then pulled through that tunnel. It can be split into a couple of pieces um, and sort of tangentially laid down um, tangential to the limbus and then secured in the conjunctiva is closed over that. Like Dr. Pargament said, then over time those little nerves sort of thin out and continue to grow peripherally and hopefully re-innervate the corneal surface. I think just just as as, um, as Megan described, that that technique of tunneling it around the, the cornea, that, that was the initial technique, but over time in the last few years, as more and more people have done this, it's gotten um, slightly more refined and, and made easier by doing things like just simply laying the graft around the limbus and applying to seal fiber and sealant. That alone is, is, is getting that nerve to stick down. But, but for the most part, people are utilizing 9 or 10 on nylon and then just securing it with, with um, partial thickness corneoscleral passes. Um, to tack the nerve down around the limbus there, and that, that works pretty well. You would think that with the eye moving around, it might pull the nerve back, but in reality, it, it really stays um, pretty nicely and doesn't, doesn't move around very much at all. Okay, what, what's the post-op recovery like for these patients? Um, typically, because these patients' surfaces are at risk to begin with, they're tarsorified um, with a temporary tarsorophy for... Uh, really a few days, but up to a few weeks, just depending on, on, on um, how stable the surface is. The patient is patched, usually for a few days as well, and then they're seen back at one week where the patch is removed, and then you can consider removing the tarsorophy. Of course, this, the surface, the vision, this corneal sensation really doesn't uh, start to improve at all until usually about two to three months when you start to notice 
um, improvements first in, in uh, corneal sensation as measured uh, either subjectively by them starting to feel the sensation of the drops hitting the eye or, or objectively with uh, Cochet, Binet, esthesiometry. Great. I'm sure that's really exciting to see them come along like that. It's not often in our subspecialties that we get to see reversal of really bad disease. Dr. Severaman, I mean, I'm sure you see neurotrophic disease from time to time in your <laughs> in your clinics, if not every hour or so. Tell us how this, this treatment could be really beneficial for these patients as compared to what we've had in the past. Yeah, I think this could be really a, a game changer and already has been for the subset of patients who've benefited from it. So as Dr. Tui said, there's a wide range of conditions that can lead to neurotrophic keratitis. I think it's actually a fairly under-recognized disease. Um, and I always tell patients it's it's sort of akin to a diabetic foot in that there's a loss of sensation and that end organ, in this case the cornea, doesn't know when it's injured and can't activate the healing processes that normally take place when it, when it senses an injury. Um, so you end up with a sickly epithelium that's easily abraded and then can get super infected and, and you know, go down the whole rabbit hole uh, that we see all too often in cornea. Um, so up until maybe five, six years ago, really all we had to offer these patients was potentially chronic bandage contact lens use um, or, or a tarsorophy. And although tarsorophies are extraordinarily effective, patients hate them because it's you know cosmetically disfiguring and um, obviously obscures the vision as well. A lot of these eyes don't see well to begin with, but um, I, I think we sometimes underestimate the psychological impact that can have to have your eyelids sewn shut. Um, more recently, we've been able to offer Oxervate, which is a recombinant nerve growth factor, um, which works in the, in the original study. This looked at patients with persistent epithelial defects, which is a common problem, secondary problem that we see in neurotrophic keratitis. And, I believe it was 60 to 70 percent who were able to heal their epithelium. Um, you know, they, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are um, getting rid of all the other problems caused by neurotroph neurotrophic keratitis. Um, a lot of times these patients have chronic scarring that then need a, a transplant, and um, there's still not a lot of data on whether Oxervate provides long-term uh, improvement in, in their prognosis. So, um, that this, iter this next iteration of treatment for NK is really exciting because it really gets to the root of the problem um, and hooks in a new source of innervation for the cornea. Why, why did this take so long to catch hold? I think you kind of made some, you alluded to it a little bit, Dr. Pargament, but it seems like a great option. And it's like Dr. Tui said, it's been around in, in, in concept for a long time. Why is it just now, you know, getting some ground in ophthalmology? Um I think it was sort of the 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 perfect storm of this surgeon, this plastic surgeon with uh, extensive peripheral nerve transplantation experience in Virginia, publishing her research, combined with Dr. Leingold, who's the oculoplastics doctor, that kind of found that and then applied it more broadly to his practice, um, and and then figured out techniques to make it a a, a little bit more uh, doable for the, for the average uh, oculoplastic surgeon. And, and then with, with him publishing those techniques that um, were presented at our ACE offers meeting and many other surgeons kind of seeing his technique and realizing, okay, this is something that I can do, something I can do on my own without having to go to a main hospital and combine with multiple subspecialties, um, that, that it became uh, doable um, on a broader scale. And so 
Um, as, as that's become more accepted and more and more uh, published work is coming out, we're seeing, uh, for example, head-to-head -head studies on, on coronarization you know, versus Senegerman or Oxervate and, and finding that the, the rates of epi-defect improvement of stromal thinning of epi persistent epithelial defects are actually lower compared that uh, visual outcomes and, and uh, sensation are, are improved compared to that. So, you know, sort of the perfect storm of circumstances and timing and the right people uh, being motivated to, to look for something that could be out there. So some people think that in oculoplastics, there's, there's not a lot left to figure out, but that's, you know, that's not the case as we see here. There's still techniques and, and conditions that we can treat with, uh, you know, new techniques. Compared to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, I'd like to hear from both sides of the subspecialties. How difficult is this procedure? on a scale of one to 10? Um, I, I've done, uh, in fellowship, we've done them, and we actually utilized the old technique um, that was described um, by, the, by the Eastern Virginia uh, program where we did a coronal incision ear to ear. So, you know, morbidity and technically that, that was uh, more of a time challenge, but technically wasn't terribly difficult. The way that we intend to apply it um, now is with the more modern techniques where we access the nerve via lid crease incision or uh, an orbital floor approach and then use an allograft um, to do an end-to-side or an end-to-end -end coaptation. And with that technique, um, it, I think the morbidity is far less, the surgical time will be dramatically lower, and from a technical standpoint, shouldn't be any, any more difficult than harvesting the graft from, from its distal end further up the forehead. And from the cornea side? Well, uh, my last experience was as a fellow doing uh, one of these and you know it's <laughs> Dr. Snyder taught me you know any minor surgery is surgery my neighbor's having any major surgery is surgery I'm having and I sort of apply that to surgery I'm doing but um, I think you know it's a very learnable technique it's a technique that uses skills that anterior segment surgeons have and use every day um, and I think it's repeatable and reproducible and I hope that we're able to bring it to Cincinnati Eye on a sort of more robust scale and help many patients. Well, I think you guys are awesome for staying on the cutting edge, and I think it's great you're here to share this with us. I don't like to rack, wrap up with a negative thing, but we, I do have to ask, are there any downsides? I mean, when you move a nerve from one place to the other, I could imagine there's a, a nerve deficit where you left it behind. You know, Megan mentioned that the nerves that we harvest uh, and utilize um, may be redundant. I think that they they do supply sensation to the dermatome that you are removing it from. So if you use V1, you are going to lose sensation in that distribution. It, what's interesting, though, is in Dr. Leingold's papers where he looks at the, his total number of like 60 or 70 patients that he's done, uh, the majority of them do not complain, continue to complain of paresthesias or hypesthesias uh, at 6 to 12 months post-op. And um, nearly all of them, actually all of them in the study, said that if they, uh, if they had that choice to do it again, would they? And they answered yes. So I think that you have some donor site morbidity. You have, um, you know, some issues with paresthesias and hypesthesias. But um, overall, patients are... are far more pleased than they are bothered by, by the peripheral nerve issues. That makes sense. All right, Dr. Sivaraman, last question for you. 
I always like to ask what what's our referral here? So when should we be thinking about this for our patients, maybe for the, the those in the audience that aren't cornea specialists? With corneal neurotization being a, a relatively new procedure that we're still getting familiar with and learning the ropes of, uh, we're generally reserving this procedure for patients with r- relatively severe disease, perhaps vision-threatening disease, who have failed all the conventional first-line treatments and who are otherwise good surgical candidates. Um, We also wanna make sure that this is somebody who has a viable nerve source that we can plug into. So someone who has a a CN5 nerve root injury, for example, who has no ipsilateral sensation, um, may not be the best candidate. We're a little bit more limited in in what uh, adjacent nerves we we can plug into. Um, and then you have to have a patient who's willing to, to you know, go the journey with you. Uh, it can take three plus months to show improvement. They have to be willing to have a tarsorophy, at least in the short term. Um, so someone who understands that this is to some extent still uncharted territory and okay taking that risk with you. Excellent. Well, again, I'm really thrilled to hear about this. I think you all are amazing surgeons and we're lucky to have you. And thank you for spending some time with me to share this with our audience. So. Welcome back to the Dr. Doc podcast. You've all been repeat offenders. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for having Lori. us. The opinions expressed by the physicians in this podcast are solely the personal opinions of the providers and do not represent iCare Partners policy.